Welcome to The Jealous Vegan, a podcast about healthy eating, habit change, and the hurdles we all need help overcoming. I'm Jennifer Hundley, co-founder of The Jealous Vegan, also known as The Voice. With me today, we have... April Cunningham, co-founder of The Jealous Vegan, health and life coach, also known as The Influencer. Lisa Carter, founder of Kinetic Fitness, also known as The Balancer. Welcome back. Today we're going to look at a popular Netflix documentary series called Explained and how they try to examine why so many people are struggling with their weight. So this documentary examines why diets are often unsuccessful. It looks at the science that suggests that low-carb, low-fat, and body-type diets, are, as well as supplements and detoxification regimens, simply do not work in helping most people lose weight. While the diet industry pushes us to avoid calories, the food industry encourages us to eat more of them. Now, before we put on our tinfoil hats and claim that there's some conspiracy to make everybody addicted to food, um, I think it's important to just point out that this is a documentary that is maybe 15 to 18 minutes long. It doesn't cover every section of the diet spectrum. It's a very short attempt to address what really has become a a serious health problem in America. And so um, there are some detractors. If you look at the IMDb reviews or Rotten Tomatoes, it doesn't have very many positive reviews. In fact, not many people have reviewed it at all. But to me, it said some really important things that I thought we should examine. And hopefully you feel the same way. Yeah. Okay, great. So, spoiler alert, obesity rates have soared in the U.S. Oh. I'm not sure if anybody's noticed. Shocking. <laughs> it mentions that the United States is in second place in terms of obesity to Samoa and now sits slightly above 40%. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Um, However, if I look at the rest of the world, I am confused why this isn't a worldwide epidemic. Why do you think that this problem has hit the United States so much harder than some other countries? Some other countries of affluence. Uh, I can use the example when I was in Italy in 2015. I remember walking along. There was fresh food in stands, they had stands, and unfortunately you get them, magazines and all kinds of things, but they had fresh produce literally by the roadside. And this was in Rome, I was in Rome proper. Um, <clears throat> there's just a different approach to food. They take their time. Um, it's about enjoying the food, which um, one thing that I find in my health coaching practice is that we rush through our food mm-hmm. and we're just scarfing something down so that we can get to the next thing. We don't take time for the families to sit down and really have a meal. That's different from my grandmother's generation, for example, when people used to gather around the table um, and, and, and eat together. It was, it was just a different approach to food. In the United States, uh, I feel like there's a woman, there's a woman that I met, um, she's Cuban, and she, I felt that she summarized it well. She said, Americans want it faster, cheaper, repeatable. Yep. Yeah, I, I don't remember 
uh, maybe you recall when you were in Italy, I've been a few times, and neither time did I have an automobile. But I don't feel like I ever saw a drive-through that dispensed food. Did you, do you recall seeing anything like that when you were they there? Don't, um, the concept of takeaway is an American introduction to Italy. Like, they have some. Like, I wanted to walk with my espresso. Like, I'm like, hey, can I get my coffee to go? And they would do it. It was called takeaway. And they would do it. But they was, it was a compensation for um, tourists. tourists, basically. And they would stand at the bar and enjoy your espresso. You don't have time to drink an espresso, which I loved about being in Italy, actually, because I felt like, yes, slow down. And enjoy your espresso. It can't take you more than, what, 10 minutes? You don't have 10 minutes to enjoy a cup of coffee? Like, yeah. How often do you make a decision about what you're going to eat based on whether or not you have to get out of your car? <laughs> I don't have a car. So <laughs> I'm going to say never. Um, I think I'm actually in reverse. I tend to not want to go to places that have a drive through because it says to me, um, you know, I want to say quantity over quality, mm -hmm. which is probably true even though we're talking about speed, but it says to me that you're rushing through trying to just, you're not putting any care into what I'm about to eat. So yeah. while you only have it for a few minutes, I have to, like... Eat it. <laughs> and It'll be with you for some period for a of while. Time. So yeah. yeah, and I think that encourages you to eat in the car. Yeah, which while you're going. Yeah, which to me speaks very much so to like, why are you in a rush? No. Well, not only that, but it it certainly impacts what type of food you can eat. Uh, so while I have consumed things that require a fork or even chopsticks <laughs> while I was driving, <laughs> shh, don't tell anyone, um, that's, that's very difficult to do. And so most people are looking for something they can hold in their hands. So that means a sandwich or some nuggets or fingers or fries. Um, and that's not typically going to be high-quality food mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. Highly processed. Mm -hmm. um, when I've tried, when fast food restaurants try to sell you an apple or something, sometimes it's in plastic because they're trying to keep it fresh. You don't know, you can't bet on the quality at all, the food wax on the outside, where's it coming from? It's the anti-fresh food. Yeah. So we're jumping ahead in the documentary, but they came to the same conclusion that in the United States, high-calorie processed food is now often cheaper and easier to get than healthy, good food, especially in low-income areas. And I remember reading Fast Food Nation, the book that I think we've talked about on the podcast previously. And that was one of the things it mentioned is that the automobile changed the way that we looked at food. Because as more people had cars and they expanded out west, fast food kind of grew up. And it became a place for people to go and, and quickly get food. And so they were looking for something repeatable that required low-skill workers. And that meant that they could keep the prices low. And I think that's part of the challenge today I was reading an article, I believe, in USA Today that $5 is the magic mark for the fast food industry. So if they can charge $5 or less and you feel like you're getting a complete meal, that's the magic number. Anything more than that, and it's difficult for them to entice repeat um, buyers or um, customers. Mm -hmm. That feels very sinister to me. I mean, I remember some of it, too, is the food delivery. They can deliver food, processed food, mm -hmm. with the preservatives and such. That's an invention that came 
you know, of age in our generation where I remember in high school in the 90s, it was cheaper to buy a bottle of soda than it was to buy a bottle of water. And I always thought that that was a strange... Mm -hmm. I remember that too. Irony, like... Still is. Not to mention that water, oh, by the way, is most of the planet and... (laughs) Should technically be free. Should be able to be accessible to every human being. And yet we had to start buying water and the Coca-Cola. So not just Coca-Cola, soda in general was was more expensive. It's less expensive than the water. Sorry, less expensive, yeah. 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 Which I think speaks to it because what people are going to reach for, something sweet and something cheap. And you're talking about high school? Feels like a win-win. Yeah, why would I... Yeah. Why would I do anything else? Yeah. The other thing is I think it does speak to the culture of the United States, right, is very corporate-driven society. And so everything is about dollars and efficiency and maximizing um, in terms of what we eat, how we eat, you know, on the go. Everything is always go, go, go. You're trying to get... Maximize your efficiency for the cheapest price. Um, I personally uh, feel like it's the preservatives and all of the other things that they put in the food Mm -hmm. to try to get it to have this crazy long shelf life. Um, I bought some bread a while ago. I want to say I had this bread for far too long, and it never grew mold. Hmm. And if you know me, you know I do not turn my air on ever because I don't believe in it. (laughs) Island baby. I am an island baby. No (laughs) shoes on. No air condition on. Um, And what floor do you live on again? 14th floor. (laughs) South facing windows. All the sun. Baking like Jamaica in there. I get so much. Every (laughs) day. I get so much sun. My apartment is turning colors. Like the floors are turning colors. The cabinets are turning colors. The color is fading off my couch. I love every second of it. I have 11 plants. I live in a jungle. I love it. Um, (laughs) My bread did not grow mold. It was not refrigerated. And it did not grow mold. And I'm like, what is in this that it is mold retardant? Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Like, what is in there? And so when you talk about chemicals like that, your body doesn't know how to process chemicals like that. It's not to be consumed. And so what happens is your body sees this foreign chemical and it's like, okay, don't know what that is. We might need it later. Let's put it in storage. <laughs> yeah. And Set so- that aside. For everything that your body doesn't recognize as a nutrient, it sets it aside and it sets it aside and it sets it aside and it sets it aside. So absolutely, people who are having a complete diet of fast food, processed foods, your body is, you're not doing anything with it. Those are actually, those people are probably more malnourished than most other people because you have a bunch of stuff, but... No actual nutrients. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was one of the biggest things I noticed when I switched to buying whole foods and all natural foods. Um, bread would have five ingredients. All natural organic bread would have five ingredients, and everything else would have like twenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and some, some things I pronounce exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, to me, that's a red flag. Like, why, my, why, why do we need this? And some of it is, a lot of it is to stabilize the food and to make, increase the shelf life, but that speaks to faster, repeatable. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very, of course, and it's going to be cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, 
it's hard because everyone wants to feel like they're making a smart decision for their family or that they're, um, in the documentary, I think it mentions, it reinforces the idea that, oh, I'm sorry, maybe this is from the article. It reinforces the idea that you're a smart shopper, right? When you like, oh, a $5 lunch and I get all this food and I might even have some leftover for another meal or a snack. Um, and so I think that we want to feel like we're making wise choices, but you know, if affordable, efficient, or value are the measures that we're using, what does that say about what we think about what we're putting into our bodies? Mm -hmm. To me, that's, that's a, it's a sad, sad state that the thing that nourishes us and allows us to spend time with our family is rated based on how repeatable or how cheap it is. When that's, that's not what eating with your loved ones should represent in my mind. I think, again, it speaks to the culture of corporate-driven, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, which is, yeah, it's really unfortunate. And, and we all breathe that ethos, right? Not yeah. just in our corporate lives, but at home. We want it faster, cheaper, repeatable. That's how we're bred and, you know, as yeah. Americans, right? And we may have um, audience members who are in other, in other countries. Um, that's just, it's a part of our ethos. We, mm -hmm. I remember going to the Caribbean and, uh, you know, my ex-husband was looking at his watch, like, what time is it? And somebody's walking by, I think we were in Jamaica, and the guy was like, you're on vacation, what do you care? <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's like, so true. wait, wait, right, why do I care? I'm yeah. on vacation. Um, the, the other thing I think, too, about why diets fail is that they focus on deprivation and... And we talk about this, you guys talk about this in a previous episode, right? Mm -hmm. That the deprivation in of itself creates anxiety and stress, which can absolutely reverse actually or sabotage the effect of trying to eat healthier. Mm -hmm. um, digestive system cannot function optimally when you're stressed and you're trying thinking of de deprivation as the goal right. to get to some size when in fact eating whole foods they don't have any trouble or they have less trouble in other countries and yeah. I, when I was in Italy I was wondering like why are there no gems where are the gems <laughs> I mean you know, right we have like gems on every corner in the city there were no gems and I asked my Italian friend and she's like um Italian women don't want you to know that they work out they do they don't want you to know it. Oh, and at first, funny. it's like, oh, that's vanity. But then it's like, well, who's more vain, actually? I think the lifestyle in general, they, they walk more. Yeah. They eat more slowly, which means they maybe get that signal that they've had enough and they stop eating right. sooner than we will because, you know, I got my extra value meal and my double big, <laughs> in double big gulp. <laughs> and I'm yeah. just going to keep eating it because it's there. Yeah. Uh -oh. And you bring up a good point that, it takes about 20 minutes for the brain and the stomach to connect and say, okay, I'm full. And the stomach gets full by weight, not by calories. So if you put a burger in there, yeah, that's going to take a while, but the weight of it is going to tell your, your brain that you're full. But it takes a while. So if you eat your meal in five minutes and you ate a burger, you're still going to be hungry because the signals haven't even mm -hmm. connected yet, um, which, of course, makes you will make a person overeat. Yeah after you've had the burger with the cheese and the fries, the fries and the and milkshake, the Diet Coke, yeah, or the milkshake. So interestingly, the documentary explored um, a study or they looked at a study that was done by, for 12 months with a good number of participants. I'm sorry, I can't recall the exact number, but they, they separated people into two groups. There was a low carb group 
and a low-fat group. And they asked them to follow a diet plan that was either low-carb or low-fat, but not to restrict their calories, or nor did they ask them to report how many calories they were consuming. And so at the end of 12 months, the results were basically identical. Some people ate, um, excuse me, some people lost weight. Um, on average, some people, you know, they, they lost the same amount of weight. In each group, there were people who lost a lot of weight and a couple of people who gained weight. But overall, they would say it was a successful diet. Uh, were you surprised at all that, that one didn't beat out the other in terms of what was more successful? I mean, I'm not. Um, I feel like that's a pretty loose plan, right, <laughs> um, to, to put someone on. And there's so many other factors where you're talking about losing weight, um, specifically if you're going strictly on what the scale says, mm -hmm. because a lot of times, I know with me in training, um, talking to people about progress doesn't always is not always reflected in the scale. Sometimes it's reflected in how your clothes fit, how you feel, that kind of thing. So they didn't add in any of those variables. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's rather, I agree that it's rather, I, diet and health is a rather individualistic pursuit. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have this thinking that, oh, there's this one size, there's, there's this low carb or there's low fat that's going to get you there. But in fact, what's happening with your body, right? Mm -hmm. And like Lisa said, I mean, if I'm an athlete, my 120 pounds is going to be different from somebody else's 120 pounds or my 150 pounds is going to be different from somebody else's 150 pounds if they're not at the same fitness level or even the same uh, activity level. It's it's mm -hmm. just going to be different. Mm -hmm. um, weight could be as muscle weighs more than fat. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, they weigh the did, same. Yeah, a pound is a pound is a pound. But yeah. But the appearance of it and how it displaces everything around it is different. Yes, right? yes, yeah. yeah. And interesting you mentioned exercise because the documentary talks about The Biggest Loser and how this has become like a cultural phenomenon. And I think they're on like 19 seasons now. Um, it's been around for a long time. But what they de determined was that two-thirds of the participants had regained their weight within six years after the competition. And so I know The Biggest Loser is not unique to the U.S. There are editions of it or versions of it in other countries as well. But this idea of people who are well past the point of overweight and are in obesity class three, which is like, you know, people who have a body mass index over 50, is it 45 or 50? Um, but, you know, people who, you know, their health is or their lives potentially are really at risk. And so they take this extreme weight loss endeavor. Um, and what one of the doctors that they interviewed on the documentary said is that their metabolism slowed down much more than you would expect because they had done this extreme weight loss. And so most people won't probably ever experience that where they really mess up their metabolism that way. But I do believe that this sense of, well, I exercised so I can have this or I deserve this. That mindset takes over and it means that people who are sometimes exercising end up eating less healthfully than if they weren't. And I think the thing with 
shows like The Biggest Loser is that they kind of, they show you how to lose the weight and you watch the person go through this journey. But what happens when that show is over? And what happens when you're back at home and you're back in your neighborhood and you're going to the same grocery stores? I don't know that those people, of course, we don't know what happens behind the scenes. I don't. Mm -hmm. But I would think that those people are not really equipped sufficiently with what they need to sustain um, those habits. Um, what do you do when you work to work out when you now don't have a trainer and you don't have a camera crew? Uh, I know even for myself, I've gone long periods of time without working out uh, because there's like, it's hard to keep up a routine of it. So it's a lot of factors there. Yeah. What do you buy? At the, what do you buy at the store? Um, and one thing too, I think that doesn't always get factored in is what happens when you're stressed. Mm-hmm. We all reach our comfort food. What happens if you're stressed? What happens if a loved one gets sick? What happens if you lose a job? Like, how do you negotiate those um, life stressors that fall into everyone's lap um, in a helpful way? And I feel like that's a critical component too. It's habit change in all circumstances to maintain that healthy lifestyle and regain that balance. It's super hard. Um, you know, life gets tough and mm-hmm. we will all reach for something that is not healthy, but that tastes delicious. Our body said we want it because we are emotionally eating or we're tired or we're stressed. Um, and there's that added component too. When you go back to your regular life, after you um, don't have someone who's watching, you know, what you eat and crushing you on the exercise, when you go back to your regular life, how do you re-enter? that in a way that's different from before. Yeah. They basically concluded at the end of the documentary that we should find the diet that we can stick with so that it's no longer a diet, it's just the way you eat. And I think that becomes the biggest challenge is that we're looking for a quick solution or some quick realization that this thing that we're doing is paying off or benefiting us in terms of losing weight typically. and. That means that you're going to do something extreme, and that typically is not sustainable. So um, having a lifestyle is the better way to approach it. Yeah, and I think even when people go into the mentality of going on a diet, they go in with the mentality that it is short term, Mm -hmm. you know? They're not, everybody's like, I'm going on a diet to lose 10 pounds, but I never hear anybody say how they're going to keep the 10 pounds off when the diet is finished or what that looks like. And so it is absolutely a mindset. It's a short-term mindset. And so, of course, you're always going to relapse. That's like going to rehab, but then you're like, yeah, but I'm going to go back now. When, I, <laughs> when I get out of rehab. You yeah. know? Um, so people absolutely need to change the way that they see weight loss and health and all of those things. It's not a short term goal, really. It's a long-term way of living. Um, and the the word diet negates that whole idea. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we're here, the Jealous Vegan, right? Because the transition is is a journey and we need support mm-hmm. and yeah. frank dialogue about it because it's, it's non-trivial and it's non-linear to sustainably shift how you've been doing something for however long and there's emotional components connected to how we eat and grandmother's mac and cheese and different things and those things are fine if you if you can eat them in moderation and whatever but it's it's really that that habit change sustainably we want to support people who um, want to transition need to transition health issue 
or just want to be healthier. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the the vegan elephant in the room since you mentioned it. The documentary mentions eat unprocessed foods to the extent that you can, right? That was one of their key takeaways. And that resonated with me because I have found that sometimes being plant-based or vegan doesn't always improve my health or my weight because I'm not eating whole fresh foods. Sometimes I'm eating french fries because that's what's on the menu that doesn't have meat or dairy. Or sometimes I'm eating chips and hummus because it does feel good and taste good. And, you know, I don't eat dessert or meat or have that creamy goodness that I'm looking for. So that's satisfying to me. But I think that means that I'm eating a lot more processed foods than I would if I was just eating maybe protein and vegetables. So what do you say to someone who's trying to make this adjustment and is relying on things that come out of boxes and bags? Well, I, I, we specifically don't use the word vegan. I mean, we, it's in our name, right, the Jealous Vegan. It's in there kind of tongue-in-cheek, right, because really we're advocates for plant-based and eat whole plants, like, as much as possible um, and eliminate meat if possible because of the benefits. The evidence is just compelling. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's when I first went vegan uh, or tried a year, uh, 10 years ago, probably, I ate French fries. I replaced my meat with French fries, which was awesome <laughs> because they're fried and they're crunchy. Yeah. Cool. And I was yeah. hungry because I didn't really s- replace it with something that was um, both delicious and fulfilling and nutritious to my body. I was replacing this is this I was focusing on deprivation. I'm gonna replace this thing I'm missing with something that feels good, but that isn't as nutritious as it should be. And the tendency can be, I'm gonna eat more bread, I'm gonna eat more mm. French fries, right. I'm gonna eat more you know, not uh non-dairy ice cream. Yeah. But that's that's the anti-plant-based, really. It, it's the way to do it wrong. Right. Um yeah. I think that it's really important. The, the way that you approach it, you know, in your in your own mind. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people will say, and we joke about this sometimes, like, in our posts, in our Instagram posts and things like that, like, wine is vegan or <laughs> french fries are vegan. But I think instead of saying to yourself, you know, I'm not going to have or something like that, processed foods falls into the same category of, Anything else that you would not consume if you were, you know, on a diet, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. because they're unhealthy foods. And so if you if you have that dialogue with yourself, I'm not going to eat things that are unhealthy. I'm not going to eat things that take me away from my goals. I'm not going to eat things that make me feel bad. Um, so let's replace that with... What you would do, not what you won't do. Right, right, right. Positive. Right, right. The positive. Oh, you're going what to you're eat getting versus foods. what you're not getting. I'm going to eat things that make me feel good. Right, right, right. I think that that's really important. Yeah, I agree. I think too that that is the greatest barometer. Like uh, listening to the body. How do you feel? First, we got to slow down to check in after you ate this thing. How'd you feel? Mm-hmm. Five hour, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, five hours later, how'd you feel? Can you eat the next thing? How'd you feel? I think that's a better barometer because the body knows what it needs and the body knows what it wants and it will, we have cravings for these reasons, right? And mm-hmm. it will reinforce those cravings 
to get what it needs. Um, and we just are oftentimes going too fast to even be in tune with what the body is saying. And it's just easier to reach for a bag of chips. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, I, I haven't done this, but maybe it, it's something that I'll try and, and others maybe will try it with me. Um, that when I'm hungry or I think that I want to eat something, take a moment and type myself a 280-character message about why I'm feeling the or what happened or why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. And I say 280 characters, one, because I can post it to Twitter, but um, also I think it's short enough that I will stop and do that. And it won't necessarily keep me from, you know, I don't have to write a book about why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling or why I want some potato chips or whatever it is that I want to do. And if you want potato chips, have the potato chips, right? Like, but be conscious about it. Right. So you can know I'm eating potato chips every day. Oh, it happens also that my dad is dying. Like, okay, that's a correlation. Fine, no judgment. Notice it, though, so that you can decide if that's how you want to nourish your body during a very stressful mm -hmm. time. Great. Okay. This is great. I appreciate you all taking some time to talk about this documentary. There are quite a few things in it that really uh, stuck out for me that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to better eating. I think we already knew that, but to see some statistics and science behind that made me feel a little bit better about um, my thoughts related to it. Yeah. Yeah. Good discussion. Thank you for listening. Please connect with us at thejealousvegan.com and sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content to support your plant-based journey. We'll see you in the next episode. And until then, don't let perfection be the enemy of progress. <laughs>